0: Let's pray together. Father, once again, we thank you for our time this morning, opportunity to be here, to study your word together, to think about the things of your word that we might be challenged in our own lives, in our own hearts, to serve you in a way that is honoring to your name, glorifying to you. So, Lord, impress upon us the truth and impress upon us the Way in which we are to put these things into practice in our own life. That your name would be glorified in it all, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'll ask you to take your Bibles with me this morning as we return to our study of Romans. And we are in Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. And I want to focus our attention this morning on verses 14 through 17. Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 17. Here is what Paul says. How then shall they call upon Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? how shall they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. However, they did not all heed the glad tidings for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. As I've been studying through the epistle to the Romans, it's a wonderful thing to see how the Apostle Paul argues his point. He's very systematic. He is very logical. We need to see this so that we understand what the Apostle Paul is saying, that we understand the implications from the words that he says. We need to understand that there is a connection here, In verse 14, being made with what he has already said before. Paul begins in verse 14 with the words, How then? How then? As if to say, therefore. In a similar fashion, he is linking it with what he has said before. In other words, in light of what I've already been saying, therefore... This is what is next. This is what you are thinking about. And so the question that we want to ask this morning is this. What is the argument that Paul is making in this entire section? What is the argument that Paul is making? When you you are studying the scriptures, when you are at home doing your own Bible study, or when you are preparing to to share in a a, a devotional or whatever it is, whatever the context, you need to be asking yourselves these kinds of questions of the author who is writing the book because that is the purpose at which you're to get at. You're to get at the intent of the author. You're not to get at some kind of thing that you make up and some kind of ethereal uh, idea or some kind of feeling you might have or what some uh, human realm might say is supposed to be said here. You're supposed to get at the intent of the author. And so you need to be asking questions of the author like we're asking this morning. What is the argument of this entire section? And... Therefore, like good students of the Bible, since we have been listening over time in our study of the Gospel of of Romans, then we know the answer to that question goes all the way back to chapter 9 and the spiritual position of the Jews. In other words, in answering the question, what is the argument of this entire section, we go back to chapter 9 because we know the answer, partially at least, to that is what is the position of the Jews or the spiritual position of the Jews in their own heart and their own mind? Because Paul has a great concern for them. We know that from chapter 9 as he begins, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. I have a great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Chapter 10, he says the similar Things, brethren, my heart's desire, my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Paul desperately desires that his brothers and sisters ethnically be saved. So, why then are so many Jews? This is the question that conjures up in, in everybody's mind. And the question that Paul is going to deal with. Why then are so many of the Jews, of all of the people who have ever been created and walked on the face of the earth, why are they refusing the gospel? Why are they actually outside the kingdom of God? Why are the Old Testament people who received the things of God? They should be the first ones to embrace the truth. They should have been the first ones seeing that they have been given the oracles of God, passed down through the ages, given to Moses, passed down through the ages. They have the Pentateuch, they have the Old Testament, they've been given it to it by God. They have all of the prophets and all of the prophets point to Christ. And yet it seems that the Gentiles, it is us, the non-Jew, those who did not have the Scriptures, those who did not believe in a living and true God, it's those who seem to be embracing the Gospel and entering the Kingdom of God. Why is that? Why is that? Paul has been dealing with this dilemma since chapter 9. And he's been dealing with it, at least initially, on a theological level. Remember in chapter 9, we were introduced to the doctrine of the sovereign election of God. That it's God who chooses. Remember chapter 9, verse 13? It is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And then in verse 18, so then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Or verse 21, does not the potter have the right over the clay to make some a lump from one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? This is the theological level that Paul is arguing from in chapter 9, the 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 reality that God being the sovereign over all things is sovereign to save those whom he chooses so when you come to chapter 10 Paul continues to look at the same question but now not so much on a theological level now on a more practical level now on a more of a level as to the nuts and bolts as to why it is people don't believe why are paul's ethnic brothers and sisters not being saved well first they refuse the gospel because they misunderstood the way of salvation we saw that in verses 1 to 13 they they don't believe the gospel because they think the way to to be in the presence of god for all eternity has something to do with works has something to do with effort, has something to do with their own religious activity. They believed, as we have seen in our study already, they thought that salvation comes by means of self-justifying effort. Self-justifying effort. They justified themselves before God. They thought if we just live rightly, we just do all the things that, we believe to be good enough for God to be accepting that we will, in fact, be accepted before God. And we found out that that is an eternally fatal error. It's a fatal error in the thinking of not just the Jews, but in so many people that we know. Family members, friends, co-workers, acquaintances that we meet on the street. So many people will say, well, I'm a good person. Yet we know that's a fatal error because perfection is required. Absolute perfection is required in order to be accepted by God according to your works. And therefore no one is going to make it. Paul said it back in chapter 3. All fall short of the glory of God. And it's not hard for us to get anybody in the human realm to say, well, nobody's perfect. All we have to do is hold up a mirror. It's clear that no one is perfect. And so we saw Paul last time dismantle that kind of thinking. And he dismantled it by quoting from the Old Testament. Particularly to the Jews. Listen, you cannot think that way. You cannot believe. You cannot come to the conclusion that salvation is by works. Because the Old Testament, the word of God that you rely so heavily on, speaks the opposite direction it tells you that salvation is by faith alone. That it's by faith in Jesus Christ. Salvation comes by calling upon the name of the Lord, it says. Calling upon the name of the Lord out of a heart that is completely in desperation, spiritually bankrupt, completely destitute. Believing in all that God has said concerning His Son. It is by faith alone that you are saved. So the Jews and so many others today are dead wrong about the way of salvation. Every other false religion, even those who sometimes claim Christianity, are wrong because they believe in some kind of Jesus plus salvation. That you can do something to help God or you can do something by way in which you are worthy to be accepted before God. And sadly, that leads to a secondarily deadly result. That leads to a second stumbling block. And the Jews had this at the highest level. For the Jews of Paul's day They got angry when Paul preached that the gospel was for all people. And what they thought was salvation. That salvation was for everybody. That that Paul could, could preach that to everybody. They hated Paul who said that. Why? Paul was a Pharisee. They knew who Paul was. They hated that he would go to the Gentiles. That he would tell those who are outside the Jewish realm, the same things that he's now telling them. And So when Paul said, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord in verse 13, and they would be saved. When Paul said, there is no distinction in verse 12 between Jew and Greek, that all men are spiritually in the same condition, the Jews were all about distinction. Paul proved it from the Old Testament. They hated that. And listen, here's the universal truth we must never forget. Here's the universal truth we must never forget. Sinful bitterness. Sinful bitterness only further blinds and deafens the ears that need to hear the truth. If there's sinful bitterness there, that only further blinds and further deafens the ears and the heart that need to receive that truth. And so the Jews hating Paul and hating the gospel and hating the reality that Paul is saying there's no distinction. You're like everybody else. They hated that and that sinful bitterness only hardened the heart more. In other words, it's always been that way. Salvation has always been the gospel call to all people. Nothing has changed. The gospel has never been something exclusive to only one ethnic group. It's never been exclusive to only the Jews. That's what Paul is trying to get across to them. And so Paul in his argumentation having then finished with that first question about the way of salvation that they got that wrong. He now introduces us. What's on the minds of those who disagree with that? What's on the minds of those who disagree with that? And what's on the minds, maybe even of us here this morning? If the gospel's for all people, then how does a person become one of those whosoever's? If the gospel's for everybody, then how does somebody become a whosoever? As Paul says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How does somebody become that? You see, we easily understand the first question that it's not according to works. And we understand that whosoever will call upon the Lord will be saved. We understand that. In other words, we understand that salvation isn't according to effort. It isn't according to your own morality gains. It's only by faith. And it's whoever will believe will be saved. But what is it that makes anybody do that? We need to ask that question of the Apostle Paul. unfortunately, the Apostle Paul anticipates that question because the reality is that not everybody is saved. Right? If whoever. Will call upon the Lord. Will be saved. And if the gospel goes out to all people. The reality is that not all people are saved. And the difficulty. Paul is going to deal with. Is addressed here in verses 14 through 17. So. Let me just give us a view into the argument in an overall sense as we begin. Let me just give us the high point view. If we were in a drone and we were sailing over the mind of Paul here at a a high altitude and we were looking down, this is the overall argument that we need to see. Paul addresses it with two statements. The first is this. A person becomes a whosoever by hearing the gospel. A person becomes a whosoever by hearing the gospel. That is what Paul is saying in verses 14 and 15. In other words, if someone is to be a whosoever, they must hear the gospel. They must hear the gospel. But that's not all. You go, what? That's not all? I thought that was everything. I mean, didn't Paul say back in chapter 1 that the gospel is the power of God and the salvation for all who believe? Yes. You mean that's not the whole answer? Because even if I was to ask you what saves any person, you will say to me the gospel. But it's more than that. There's a second part. Why do I say that? Because there are plenty of people who hear the gospel... And they never become one of the whosoevers. Right? There's plenty of people who hear the gospel. It's not magic pixie dust. It's patently obvious to all of us. That all who hear. Do not believe. In fact. Paul even quotes in verse 16 from Isaiah. Lord who has believed our report. I mean, the prophet Isaiah is saying, even of Israel, Lord, who's believed it? We've shared it everywhere. It's gone out to everybody who's believed it. In other words, something else must also happen for someone to become a whosoever. And that is, secondly, that the word preached, the gospel is made effective in those who become a whosoever. It is made effective in those who become a whosoever. and That is what Paul is saying and dealing with in verses 16 and 17. Verses 14 and 15, they must hear the gospel. Verses 16 and 17, but the gospel must be made effective in their heart. So that's a grand overview of what Paul's saying. How shall they call upon Him in whom they have not believed? Paul says in verse 14. How shall they call upon Him in whom they have not believed? In other words, first they must get the information. They must get the information. But Paul they haven't all obeyed the gospel. They've been given the information, but they haven't obeyed the gospel. Even Isaiah says that. Yes, because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Yeah, that's Paul's argument. They've got to hear the gospel, and yet faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so the answer to the first question, how does someone become whosoever, The answer is this, by the preaching of the gospel message. But also, by something that differentiates the hearing of some from the hearing of others. And the hearing of those some, it leads them to call upon the name of the Lord. In other words, in theological terms... Verses 14 and 15 tell us about the general call of the gospel. And verses 16 and 17 tell us about the effectual call of the gospel in those whom God is saving. Verses 14 and 15, the general call of the gospel. And verses 16 and 17 is the effectual call of the gospel in those whom God is saving. The general call of the gospel gives the information about Jesus Christ. The general call of the gospel calls all men everywhere to repent and to believe upon Him alone for salvation. But the general call of the gospel is not the effectual call unto salvation. A person becomes a whosoever because of the effectual call of the Word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of Christ. So how does this get worked out in the logic of Paul here in this text for us to understand? Well, I want to begin our time this morning just by analyzing verses 14 and 15. We'll see how far we get with all of that. You remember that salvation... Is the outcome of calling upon the name of the Lord. Right? We understand that. Verse 11 of, verse 10, of chapter 10. Whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. And then verse 13. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That is saying the same thing in two different ways. There is faith that is necessary in order to be saved. Calling in those verses. Faith. Belief. Belief. Calling calling is exercised faith. Maybe think of it like that. Calling is exercised faith. It's belief that is now walking in it. And since that's the case, then it assumes that whosoever is calling on the name of the Lord must first have the knowledge of the Lord. you see? Whoever's going to exercise a belief has to have an information in order to which to exercise that upon. Now notice how Paul works this through. Notice what he says. Verse 14. How then shall they call upon Him in whom they have not believed? In other words, faith is both a mindset and an exercise. Faith is a mindset and an exercise. We can say we believe... And yet, if that belief is an exercise, it's not real belief. It's just a mindset. It's a thought. Okay? So we have to have that in our mind. And I trust you notice that Paul is rightly implying here in verses uh, 14 and following he's implying that people will not call, they will not exercise faith, they will not walk by that, that intellect unless there is faith to be exercised. They're not going to walk, they're not going to call out, they're not going to exercise faith without having faith. How are you going to do that? How are you going to do something if it's not in you? How are you going to exercise something you don't have? You don't have it in you to exercise faith You don't have it in you to call upon Jesus. In fact, we can even go so far as to say it's impossible for you to exercise faith that you don't have. That's why Ephesians 2 says that faith is a gift. It's a gift from God. But then Paul brings up another question that is asked here. He begins with that first one. How shall they call upon him in whom they haven't believed? In other words, how can they exercise a faith when they don't even have faith? Then he asks another question. Notice, how shall they believe which is necessary to exercise faith? How You have to have faith. How will they have faith in whom they have not heard about? Well, they have a faith in the one that can save unless they... Hear about the one who can say. So now it takes it a step further. And the implication is this. You cannot believe or have faith in something, in a person, in a group, in an entity of some kind, or in a general sense or even in a salvation sense. You cannot have faith in that if you have not heard, if you have no knowledge about it. Makes sense, doesn't it? Makes logical sense. I mean, Paul is being very logical here. Logical. Think about it in a more trivial, earthly way. Think about it in this way to just try to help us understand. If you are sinking in your boat, you have the wealth to own your own little yacht. And you're out there floating on the ocean because you love the open water. And your boat starts to take on water in the ocean and you are sinking. You're going down. You will not send out a mayday call to the Coast Guard if you have no knowledge of the existence and abilities of the Coast Guard. You don't know anything about them. They're the ones who can save you. Yet you know nothing about them. You have no knowledge of them at all. No one's ever told you about them. No one's ever told you about their capabilities their, their capabilities, their ability to come and save you. You know nothing of them, and that implies you have no confidence in their ability to save you. Because you have no knowledge. It's the same with Christ. No one calls, no one exercises trust upon something they have no knowledge of. Which implies they have no confidence in that entity actually doing what you are about to ask them for. So how do we get to know about that in which we do not believe and which we are to believe? Well, in this case, the one on whom we are to call or... To exercise trust. Paul says. Notice the third question. How shall they hear? First they need the information. So therefore they had to hear it. How are they going to hear without. A preacher. A preacher. The word is. Keruso there. The word is a herald. uh, Someone who is. Heralding the truth. It's not simply just. In, in one sense, in, uh, someone who is sharing the gospel with another person, although we are all called to do that. Paul is being very specific here with the Jews because false teaching was was rampant. Anybody and everybody could say, hey, I'm a teacher of the truth. You notice even when Paul goes to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 17 and he goes on the Areopagus, that was the place where everybody with some kind of thought would come and argue their point. And Paul gets up there and he says, listen, I know you guys have all kinds of views about all kinds of things. In fact, you're very religious people. You have all these idols all over the place. You even have one to an unknown God. Well, let me tell you about it. That that was the norm. People would just come and share whatever. People were saying, Who is this idle babbler? Who's this guy? Is this some new idea we haven't heard about? I mean, is this something new? Some new philosophy that's come down the train that we need to know about? Paul says, How are they going to hear without a herald, a, a preacher? In other words, how does anyone hear about the necessary information concerning the person on whom they must call for salvation? How does anyone hear about that? In fact, how would any person know anything about Christ if someone had not told them about him? That is simply to say, you would know nothing about him without a preacher. You would know nothing about Christ without someone who came to herald the truth. In other words, preaching is essential to the gospel. Preaching is essential to the gospel. The preaching isn't the means of salvation. In other words, that's not what, it's not the preacher and the preaching that God uses to save somebody. No. The power of salvation is the word of God, right? It's God's word. It's not, what, it's not the preacher themselves. It's God. But preaching is God's means for the gospel to go out. This is one of the very reasons why, in our modern day of minimizing preaching, that we here in this church highlight preaching. It's not just this idea that, hey, we like to have somebody up in front, and that person's got such ego that they want to be seen in front of all kinds of people. It has nothing to do with that. It's sad to see churches today that have relegated preaching to a very small part of what is called a worship service. In fact, so many churches are out there today where people can't even tolerate 15 minutes of somebody talking. Now maybe, maybe that person shouldn't be talking so I, none of us would be able to tolerate it either. But if we're teaching God's Word, if it's the Word of God rightly divided, then shouldn't we just want to hear it? Shouldn't the people of God, regardless of what it takes, want to sit under the teaching of the Word of God because it's God's Word? Preaching is to be the central part of worship. This is why we call this our worship in preaching. We have worship in giving. We have worship in music. But it's the worship of God. We worship God in prayer. All of these things are worship to God. We are worshiping God through the reality of preaching His word. God is telling us about Himself. God here is telling us about himself. He's telling us, listen, I want people to be saved. People are saved when they call upon me and they must hear of me. Therefore, you must herald me to people. Why? Because that's how I designed it. How can people believe without hearing from the preacher? I think it's important for us to understand that the Bible places a great emphasis on preaching. First Corinthians chapter one, verse 21. God has ordained that through the foolishness of the message preached. I love the way he says that specifically since I'm a preacher. I like the fact that God didn't say. God has ordained that through the fool who is preaching the message. <laughs> I'm so glad he didn't say that. Even though that's probably true. No, he says God has ordained. God has made it so, orchestrated so, ordained it so, that through the foolishness of the message preached, He will save those who believe. We marvel when somebody gets saved. How could God save that? I mean, look at that. This is amazing that God would save that person. And we we marvel at that, and yet they got saved by listening to a foolish message. A message about a a God-man who came and lived a perfect life, who died on a cross, and that if you believe upon him, you repent of your sins and embrace him by faith, you too will be saved. That sounds like absolute idiocy. And yet that's what God uses to save. And so Paul brings us to this last question as Paul anticipates this idea. Well then, okay, if they need to believe, how they're going to believe upon him to whom they have not believed, how they're going to call him, and how they're going to believe in whom they haven't heard, and and how they're going to hear without a preacher, okay, they need a preacher, they need the word preached, then how shall they preach unless they are sent? How are they going to preach unless they're sent? Now, I want to spend some time on this idea of being sent. Because Paul could have easily just stopped right there at verse, the end of verse 14 and moved right down to the middle or to the second sentence in verse 15. Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. And yet Paul interjects this phrase, this sentence at verse 15, how shall they preach? How shall they be one of those who are keruso of the word of God unless they are sent? I think we need to spend a little, idea, a little time here on this idea of sin in light of the process by which the general call of the gospel primarily goes out. Remember, we're talking about the general call of the gospel. This is our part, the general call. The efficacious call is God's part. But God has given us specifically this as a responsibility to, to to preach the word of God. So, in a general and a and a specific sense, I should say, the preacher has been sent out to give all people the knowledge concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, so that they might call upon Him and be saved. That's that's the intent. So that says something about the the content of the message to be preached. You cannot simply just say whatever you want. You cannot get up here and tell people like we hear, and like books are titled, this is your best life now. You cannot tell people the foolishness that comes up in the heart of man. You don't get that option. You must say what God says, because that's God's specific way to give people the knowledge of Jesus Christ so that they might be saved. No one gets saved by that foolishness. Therefore, Paul here, by using the word sent, the scriptures are implying that they are sent out ultimately by the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, we hear again Paul quoting from the Old Testament. Right? That's that's the implication. How shall they preach unless they're sent? And Paul. Quotes the Old Testament again in in, uh, verse 15, quoting Isaiah 52, but also Nahum 1. That's the same verse, same implication. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good news. So it doesn't matter which passage you turn to, Isaiah 52, verse 7, or Nahum chapter 1, verse 15, the implication is the same. What's the implication? Here it is. 800 years before the time of Paul, nearly a thousand years before Paul's even on the scene to say this, the prophets had been given by God a view into the time of the Messiah. A time when the Lord would be revealed in person, the prophets had been given that, and He would send out His messengers with the good news of salvation to all people. That's what Paul's saying to the Jews. Listen, this, the, the gospel's gone out since since before I was on the scene. This isn't something new. I'm not making this up. I didn't. This isn't something I decided on my own here. This is what. The word of God has said from ages past. And so it seems at least rather simple by way of theology. All must hear the gospel to be saved, but the implications of Paul's words here have great impact upon the church and upon how the church functions. You say, what are the implications of that? Well, the first implication is the fact of missions, isn't it? How will they hear without a preacher? Doesn't that say something about missions? In other words, since all people must hear the gospel, then it is imperative upon the church to take the good news to the surrounding world, isn't it? I mean, how are they going to hear without a preacher? Well, we we better get preachers out there. In fact, we can see that happening all through the New Testament. I go for a minute back to uh, Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Notice what it says. Remember what happened in Acts chapter 7? Stephen... Preaches one message is put to death. Paul, the writer of Romans, who was then Saul, is standing right there holding the coats of those who are throwing the rock. Paul's clapping along as the crowd, as Stephen's being put to death. Right? That's what it says in chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. So here's the apostles, the band of the apostles. They're left in Jerusalem and all the other people are scattered throughout the region. And some devout men buried Stephen. They made a loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house. Dragging off men and women, he would put them in prison. Therefore, therefore, verse 4, those who had been scattered. Now, who's he talking about? He's not talking about the apostles, because they're in Jerusalem. Those who had been scattered. This is just normal, everyday people. All of us, normal, everyday Christians, went about what? Preaching the word. Now the word he uses there for preaching is not russo, it's euangelion, it's giving the gospel. That's the word of the gospel. He's, they went about giving the gospel. That is our task as people. That is our task as Christians. Go about and give people the gospel. But you must see it this way. That is not preaching in the sense that Paul's talking about in Romans 10. He's not using the same word. Notice, Philip goes down to a city in Samaria and he begins proclaiming Christ. You know what the word proclaiming there is? Terusso. Preaching. He was preaching. They were sharing the gospel. Philip is preaching. It's Different. The multitudes with one accord were giving attention to what Philip said. As they heard the signs, or as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing, the people are preaching in, in the sense of evangelion. They're sharing the gospel, and Philip, as an official sent one, is preaching. He's Russo. He's sharing the gospel in the sense of in a formal way, as a sent one by the church. So when it came to preaching like philips in acts 8 he's a herald of the gospel that's someone who's officially sent a herald of the gospel now go back to romans chapter 10 because in Romans 10 paul is using the word herald that's what the word preach is how shall they herald unless they are sent it's a specific sense he's using this word Sent implies an official capacity, an official nature with it. How will they hear without a preacher and how will they preach unless they are sent? So let me say it again. Let me just repeat it. All Christians are to evangelize. All of us are to euangelion. We are to give the good news. But not every Christian is a herald of the gospel. That's an official capacity. The herald of the gospel is an official commission. Someone who has been officially sent. Now, some may be asking, why are you highlighting that aspect specifically? Why are you highlighting that? Well, first, because that's the word Paul is using. And so we can't just ignore it. We have to deal with it. But also because today in the evangelical church... As we live in it. There is a big problem. Within evangelicalism. Whereby you have many. Who are self-proclaimed. And self-sent. So-called preachers. And missionaries. They are self-proclaimed. They are self-sent. Those who have. Self-appointed themselves. To some kind. Of at least in their mind. Some kind of official ministry. And it should not be. Simply because that's not how God has designed his church. So what does it mean then. When Paul says how shall they preach unless they're sent. What does that mean specifically. Well first it means that sending always has an official capacity. Sending always has an official capacity. We know this from the Bible history, even in John the Baptist. John the Baptist came and preached, and some would say, well, he was self-appointed. No, he wasn't, because in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, behold, God says, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And that passage is quoted in Matthew chapter 11. And so John is officially commissioned. John is officially sent by God. Prophesied in the Old Testament. Seen so even in his parents. As his father was moot until he was born. And then gave his name because of his title. And then he was sent out by God. Luke chapter 4. Jesus Christ himself was even sent jesus christ himself said in luke 4 the spirit has sent me so john was sent jesus was even officially sent of course the apostles were officially sent jesus said in matthew 10 verse 16 behold i send you out A sheep, you're going into the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents, innocent as doves. I'm sending you. That wasn't just, hey, listen, go, go to the next neighboring town. That was an official reality. You're going out as my envoy. You're going out as my representative. You're going out as someone officially sent on behalf of me. In other words, the men that Jesus chose did not just independently of themselves decide that because they knew him that they would go out and preach. They didn't do that. Jesus calls them. Jesus commissions them. And then he sends them. How shall they preach unless they are sent? The text says. Now somebody's going to say, okay, well, what about the Apostle Paul? What about Paul? Well, even Paul says that he was called an apostle. Every letter Paul writes, he says, I was called an apostle. Therefore, he wasn't self-appointed. He didn't just wake up one day and say, hey, I'd like to be those other guys. I'm going to erect myself as an apostle. In fact, he even went to the leaders in Jerusalem to confirm to them the very thing he was teaching to others. Therefore, in confirming what he was teaching, he was, I believe, confirming his calling. In Acts 26, Paul clearly states his testimony on the road to Damascus when he's standing before Agrippa. He says this. Here's what he said. Acts 26, beginning verse 12. So while so engaged as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priests. In other words, even in Paul's old ministry, he had an official capacity and a commissioning by the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun. Now, I don't know about you. When I was a kid, I tried to play that silly dumb game of looking at the sun. (laughs) How bright is the sun? I mean, to be brighter than the sun is massively bright. And Paul says, there was a light shining brighter than the sun. And it was shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. It was all around us. And when we had fallen to the ground, yeah, that's the normal response. It isn't just, hey, look, Jesus is here. Look, my buddy came to see me. No, you fall to the ground. That is the natural response of unregenerate man when God is involved. And I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. But get up, stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to what? To appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which I will appear to you. Rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am, get this, sending you. Paul was sent, commissioned and sent by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's the same reality throughout all the New Testament. Man is appointed and man is sent to preach. That implies there is no self-appointed gospel ministries. Let me say that again. There are no self-appointed gospel ministries. Anybody who thinks they're out there doing gospel ministry and they've been self-appointed, they haven't been sent by the church In an official commissioning capacity sent by the church, they are not honoring God. Preachers, missionaries who are just preachers in other lands. They are only that by official commission. No other way. God clearly puts it upon the heart of a man to preach. That's a God-given deal. God puts it upon the heart of a man to preach. And then that man is confirmed by the church. Mark this, not simply because he says, I got a feeling I have been called to preach. Not because of that. No, he he may have that desire, but then he he goes and he is confirmed. If and when he meets the requirements of the God-given standard by which the church is to function, which is 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. You, meet the, you might have the desire, but you don't meet the qualifications. Therefore, it's not a God-given desire. It's born somewhere else. So the church, they do not commission someone simply on the basis of that person's desire. Or on that person's so-called, quote-unquote, potential gift. Or their, quote-unquote, potential Effectiveness. They don't do that and thereby self-promotion is called into into place there. That's self-promotion. No, God calls the church to commission spiritually qualified men. And how do we as a church ascertain that qualification? We open the Bible and we go to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and we go down those qualifications and we evaluate as a group the men who are called in their heart to preach. Whether it's missionaries pastors, whatever it is. So we, the church, have been given the spiritual responsibility of protecting the church at large. And this is why Paul is saying that to the Jewish people. Listen, false teachers were rampant. How are they going to preach? How are they going to preach what is necessary in order for people to call upon the one in whom they are to believe unless they're sent, unless it's evaluated. You just don't want somebody going out there saying whatever. There's plenty of that. Oh, live a great life, believe Jesus. He'll make your life better. You just don't want people doing that. That's dangerous. And so by exercising spiritual judgment as to whether a man is qualified or not to preach is our job. A herald of the gospel. It's far more than a desire or an intellectual understanding of a message spoken. It's far more than that. Oh, I I want to be someone who shares the gospel. Great. As a Christian, you're called to go share the gospel. Go and tell people the good news. But if you're going to stand up and be a preacher, if you want to be a missionary, then you need to be tested. You need to be tried. You need to be evaluated. You need to be commissioned. You need to be sent. And if you go out doing that without that, you're not honoring God. It's that simple. The qualification is tied to the life. Of submission to God through his church. Let me say that again. The qualification is tied to a life of submission to God and his church. God orchestrates and operates his ministry through the church. Without that, without that is your commission The preaching is not honoring to God who has given us the church and the gospel. That's what God has done. This is serious. This is very serious for the church. So if we, the church, will not evaluate those who say they are called, then we are in danger of not even recognizing true preachers. We're in danger of that. Commissioning and official sending is a protection to the gospel and to the church. So Paul says, how shall they preach unless they are sent? There's Nothing more important than preaching. Nothing more beautiful than being a herald of the good news of Jesus Christ. What Isaiah says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. Well, if that's the case, then how much more vital then is it for us, the church, to ensure that those who preach are officially sent for such a task? Very, very important. How easy it is to preach falsely. How easy it is to just lead others astray. How easy it is to help someone think they're saved when maybe they're not saved at all. But when a man is sent by the church and he says something wrong or he goes wrong, guess what? He can be corrected easily. He can be corrected easily because there's now he's submitting himself under the function of God And for his great care. And it minimizes the danger to the church. And to actually himself. But when someone is self-appointed. They endanger not just the church at large. But they endanger themselves. Why? Because they submit to nobody. It's only them. They say they submit to God. But they're not submitting to the church. They say I do this... Because it's for God's glory and yet they submit to no one except themselves and their own self-appointed ideas about who they are. So Paul says, how shall they preach unless they are sent? God's man is one who has the reality of his life of being sent by the church. That's the true herald of the gospel. There's no heralding in the New Testament by means of self-appointment. It just is non-existent. You won't find it. So ultimately, every herald of the gospel is sent by God. And God will put it on the heart of a man in a, in a desire to preach. But if you have that desire, and you believe that God has called you, then you must not go preaching until you are sent. That happens through the church. Allow God to confirm that truth in you by means of the confirmation of the church. Let them evaluate your life according to the word of God and see if that's actually what God is doing in your life. So for someone to be a whosoever, they must first hear the gospel. They must first hear the gospel. And so the general call goes out. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. But the general call must be met with the efficacious call of the word of Christ. And we'll see that next time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. Just this opportunity to really, in many ways, scratch the surface of all the implications that are here by means of the Apostle Paul and his word to us. We thank you for the truth that you have given us. We thank you for the impact that it can have upon our lives if we would simply just submit to it. Lord, I trust that these people here would take these words and put them into practice in their own heart, that they would remember them in times when needful to help others who are even contemplating the reality of the call of ministry. That all of us would do what you have called us to do and asked us to do as Christians. And that is to go and share the gospel. be, Be those who are preaching. And yet those who want to be preachers and missionaries and others, Lord, we pray. That they would come under the headship of the church. Allowing the church to evaluate their lives so that they might be rightly before you. And their message would be honoring to you. And the ministry would be seen as your ministry. Lord, help us to apply these things now for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name.